have an incredible next generation student ministry at Orchard. And, and those of us who aren't involved in, in those um, services, those ministries, don't often get to hear or even know what kind of teaching are our young people getting here at Orchard. This is an opportunity for you to hear some of the teaching that our junior high, senior high, and college students here at Orchard um, get to hear every week. Um, and not only that, but our executive teaching team, which is Dave Bartlett and Jeff Mickey and myself, believe you're going to really hear some great teaching. And I believe that more than ever after I've already listened to Derek teach once this morning. So I'm going to invite Derek up. Um, Derek and his wife Kristen are leaders here at Orchard. They have three lovely children who politely run around the church Sundays and Wednesdays. You can greet them then. Derek is a math teacher at Hudson High School, and he um, also is on staff part-time here with the basic college ministry. And I've been um, Derek's coach these last couple weeks um, as he's prepared this teaching that he's already given it basic to bring here. And it is a rare moment for a young teacher to hand me his teaching, his or her teaching text, and for me to say to them, this is phenomenal. I mean, aside from a couple minor tweaks, don't change a thing. Derek has a strong teaching gift, and I invite you this morning to do what Hebrews 10.24 says, which is let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur, spur Derek on by giving him your full ears and, and, and open your hearts and minds this morning to what he has to say because it's good stuff. And now I'm not to just set you up or anything, but <laughs> here's the bar. No pressure. Um, if I didn't think you could reach it, I wouldn't do it. Let me, <laughs> let me pray for Derek and for us, and off we'll go. Um, Father, thank you for the gift of Orchard Hill Church as a body of Christ, that we can do the things you've called us to, but God, all across the Cedar Valley and Grundy County and you know, Waterloo and Waverly, you are using all the members of the body to reach people for Jesus. And we don't always get to see and hear what all the other parts of the body are doing. And so this morning is just this privileged time when we can, uh, we can see what you're doing, God, through our teachers who are teaching the next generations. And so what a powerful moment. I pray for Derek that he would let your spirit work mightily through him. I pray for each one of us that we would be able to put aside what we walked in here with or at least just hold it in our hands because his teaching is going to touch us um, in those places where we're worried or we're concerned or we're stressed about something. And I pray, God, that you would open our minds now to what you have to say to us through your word and through Derek's teaching. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Off you go. Well, now that Alice has set me up to fail here, um, <laughs> I'm just going to dismiss you because we're just, just go home and talk about how good it probably was, it probably would have been. No. Um, uh, so over the past six months, six or eight months since the college ministry team decided what we we're going to teach on this spring semester, I've really been kind of on a journey uh, with the topic I was given, which was prayer, uh, which is just cool to see God orchestrating even that little thing. Like he knew I needed to learn some stuff about prayer. So, hey, you're going to teach on this. Oh, no. Right. Like he does that to us sometimes. And it's just been great the last like I said, six or eight months, to be able to learn myself about prayer. And 
uh, that's what this is today. This is just sort of my learning. Um, so I hope that you can glean some things from what God has taught me over the last six or eight months uh, as we move forward. So in the beginning of talking about prayer, I realized that I felt really guilty about my prayer life. Does that something that you ever feel? You feel guilty? Uh, but as I started to study about prayer, I, I understood that my guilt was really pretty misplaced. I've started to believe that prayer is more about being with God and not so much about the words that we use or the way that we say those words when we're actually praying. When I was growing up, I got the idea that God was a finger-pointing God, that he was in the sky looking down at me, and I was small and insignificant, and that I wasn't doing stuff right. My daughter's leaving the room. <laughs> I'm in for a long haul here. <laughs> I got the idea that God was looking down at me saying, Derek, you need to do a better job of this or that. But I was pretty good at pleasing people growing up. My parents were generally proud of me, and uh, my friends liked me. I was an athlete in a small town, so I was well-liked and well-known. Uh, but I, I just never felt like I was living up to God's expectations for me. And one of the ways that this manifested itself was in my prayer life. I felt that prayer needed to be eloquent and rehearsed, and done with the right attitude and in the right setting. I really understood the reverence part of God. I understood that he is huge, and he is powerful, and he is all-knowing, and he has existed from before the creation of the earth till after I die. I understood that, and I think that really made it hard for me to understand that he also wants to be in relationship with me. I really had a hard time grasping that, that God wanted me, a little insignificant me, he wanted that relationship. One where I bring myself and all my garbage to him in prayer, regardless of what's going on in my life. And I, I wonder how many of you struggle with that same thing. So we're going to be in Luke 18. In the beginning of Luke 18, there are two parables about prayer, and we're going to look at the second one, starting in verse 9, but you should read the first one later, because it's a good parable as well. So, verse 9 says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In this parable, we see the tax collector, uh, who of the time, is he's a sinner. He is cheating people out of his money, because there weren't many regulations back then, and he could kind of do what he wanted. 
So he cheated people out of his money. And we see a Pharisee who's sort of the other end of the spectrum. He's morally upright, and he pursues personal holiness, and he's an upstanding figure in the community. And as I started reading about the passage, I started thinking about it, and I realized I, probably like many of you, strive to be like the Pharisee. We try to do all the right things, and we, and we want to feel good about what we're doing. I think subconsciously, I feel like the affirmation that I get from people, from growing up and even to now, that that affirmation means that I am in right standing with God, even though I haven't had to spend any time with him. Like I can trick myself a little bit. I can trick myself into thinking that I'm okay in the eyes of God, but I never actually spend any time with him at all. I wonder how that makes God feel. And the Pharisee goes the extra mile here. He says, hey God, look at all the stuff I'm doing for you. I'm doing all these things. Oh, and by the way, not only am I doing these things, but you see that guy? You see that guy? He's, he's an awful person. He steals people's money. Thank you that I'm not like him. He really goes to great lengths to make himself feel like he's doing what God is wanting him to do. And for those of us who have been Christians or uh, for a while now or grew up in the church, it's easy to do that, I think. I feel that in my own self. It's just easy to cluster together and pat each other on the back and feel good about what we're doing in the church um, and to point out those who aren't doing that good of a job at following Jesus. But the tax collector has a different attitude. He approaches God with an attitude of reverence. He knows he is sinful and not worthy of being in the same room as God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the line he chooses. Tax collectors of the day were notorious for ripping people off. They were regarded as awful people with whom no one would want to be friends with, similar to being friends with a modern-day St. Louis Cardinals fan. Um, I have to say that because my brother and my sister-in-law are huge Cubs fans, um, so that's the example that I came up with. It's Cardinals fans, right? Am I right? In the end of the parable, shockingly, the tax collector is justified in the eyes of God. This means that the tax collector is seen as righteous in the eyes of God. A couple things really stood out to me as I read this parable. The first is that I realized that a lot of the prayer we see in the Bible is really just strikingly simple. Like, hey God, I have some stuff, I'm doing okay, but you should give me more. I want more stuff than I already have. Or, um, hey God, I'm kind of struggling here, come on, can you do a, do a bro a favor and just like, help me out here? Or, in, in the case of Peter sinking when he's trying to walk on water, just straight up, help, help, I am, I'm drowning here. We see these prayers, and they're really pretty simple. And uh, for me, it looks like just asking for a lot of patience. I struggle with patience with my kids when they're getting on my last nerve uh, to not just lash out and yell at them. Um, It looks like me asking for safety when I'm getting on my wife's last nerve. uh, and, and, And you laugh, but these are things that happen in our house. She's looking at me right now, so... Uh... And another thing is that we, uh, we're very different thinkers, my wife and I. So I can, be, I can be talking to her and saying, hey, you know, what if we did this? Oh, and then we could do this, and then we could save some money and then do that. And she's like, Derek, 
I don't know what we're having for lunch today, so you can't talk to me about what's happening in five years because that's not how my brain works, and we miss each other often. And, and these are the things that I end up praying about most often are these sort of simple things. So the first thing that I learned about prayer is that it is simple. And I have to admit, I feel a little bit, a little bit stupid to say that Sunday morning, here's my first huge point about prayer is that it's simple. It's, it's, it's just simple. The point is simple and prayer is simple. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought about simple prayer, the more it seemed to resonate with me. My head often knows things that my heart won't accept. And this is one of the few times where I have learned something that has made sense in my head, logically, and that my heart has really just, it just resonates. It just feels like, yeah, this is something I need to pursue. That God wants me, and God wants you. He wants us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He gave his only son in the most painful and bloody way possible to be with us. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew we would mess up a lot, and we'd be naturally selfish people. In Revelation 3, the Apostle John is given a vision to write a letter to a church, and the church is struggling, and this is what this one verse out of that passage says. It says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So the scenario is the church is not doing a very good job of following the commands of the, the New Testament. And uh, God says, hey, I'm here to eat with you, to have lunch with you. But he doesn't say, hey, I'm here to come in and just fix you right up. I'm going to come in and tell you all the things that you're doing wrong. I'm going to point my finger at you. And then you can know what you need to do to get better so that you can be in right standing with me. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, open the door and let's have lunch. And I thought that was pretty interesting. To just be with them. Richard Foster says it like, like, like this in his book uh, just, that's just called Prayer. Simple prayer involves ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate Father. We do not pretend to be more holy, more pure, or more saintly than we actually are. We do not try to conceal our conflicting and contradictory motives from God. And in this posture, we pour out our heart to the God who is greater than our heart and knows all things. So this... This really made a lot of sense to me. There is no masking ourselves in true, simple prayer. God knows our hearts already. So we come to him, and I've often done this, where I have come and I have said, okay, I need to pray. Okay, what am I supposed to be praying about? I'm not supposed to be praying about myself. I need to be praying about other people. Okay, I'm going to pray about other people. Well, in that moment, God has already known my heart. He already knew what I was thinking. And so why am I trying to almost trick God in a way? That's not how prayer was meant to be. So I've, I've felt like my prayer doesn't live up to our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those, that prayer from the Bible, mine does not look that way. And I felt guilty about that. 
But one of the most helpful lines in this book, and the simple, simple line from this book from Richard Foster, is this one. It says, in the same way a small child cannot draw a bad picture, so a child of God cannot offer a bad prayer. And this line really struck me. And as I kind of thought about it, it dawned on me that uh, this last Christmas, my son Gideon made me this keychain, and I have it on my keys. It's just this little keychain, it's just this little piece of plastic that says for dad on it. And it, it falls apart, I have, to, I have to retie it all the time. Um, it's not something that he meant to be a very big deal. Uh, on the Christmas morning, I can remember sitting on the couch and, and opening this little, like, crumpled up package, you know, because it wasn't in a box or anything. And me opening it and him looking at, like, that's from mom, that's from me? I, I don't even remember doing that. He didn't remember making it. Because it wasn't meant to be a big deal. It was just like a passing thought. Like, he was bored and, eh, okay, I guess I'll make something for dad quick. I'll tie it together and, okay, here you go. It wasn't meant to be a big deal. He did it on the fly, but I loved that even if only for 30 seconds, he thought of me enough to say, hey, I'm going to make something for dad. And I don't get very emotional very often, but... I could feel the emotion sort of welling up inside of me as I was opening this little crumpled up thing of wrapping paper uh, on Christmas morning, uh, that he thought of me enough to do that. And I think God understands us and our prayers in this way, however insignificant we feel like they are. That he wants the simple, straightforward requests that may be selfish requests or Um, that may just be uh, you're having a really bad day and you need to come to him for 10 seconds and pray a simple prayer, I think God understands those prayers the same way that Gideon's little 30-second project affected me in my heart. God looks at you like he looks, like a good parent looks at the child they love. Nothing that a child offers that parent is rejected. Another part of the passage that really stood out to me was that after the tax collector beat his chest, he says to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A very simple, very honest prayer. And the next verse says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the tax collector was honest about his shortcomings. And it says that he went home justified, which means that he was made righteous in the eyes of God. God saw him as righteous. So the second thing that I learned sort of from this last verse is that prayer is transformational. Prayer is transformational. The Pharisee, like me a lot of times, was doing a lot of things to try to be in right standing with God. He was giving a tenth of all that he had, and he was fasting, and he was praying, and and he was generally a good moral person. He was trying to, in a way, earn God's love. But God wants us to be with him. He just wants us to be with him. Romans 3, or Revelation 3.20 was talking about just having lunch with God. Like, knock on the door, open it up, he'll come in and have lunch. It just seems so simple. Like, I just need to be with him. 
to let him speak to me and help me and guide me. For, for all those who, are, who exalt themselves will be humbled. This part applies to the Pharisee. He's elevating himself to a place of importance and status, and this doesn't show humility. And those who humble themselves will be exalted refers to the tax collector. So this next part is kind of uh, not something I pulled from the uh, great theologian. This is just the way that my logical, analytical brain has to understand things. I think that's the curse of being a math teacher. You cannot just accept anything. You have to know how things work. A leads to B, B leads to C, etc. So I ask myself this. What is it that actually makes the tax collector humble? What, is it something that he does? Is it something that I'm not seeing here? What makes him humble? So he was honest in the presence of God. He recognizes his position as not only being less than God, but not even deserving of a relationship with him at all. When he says, um, when he says have mercy on me, a sinner, that's like, hey, you don't have to even give me anything or help me at all. Just don't give me the punishment that I am supposed to have here. You don't have to, I don't, I don't, you don't have, to have a relationship. Just don't punish me. But as we stated earlier, God delights in our presence. He wants us, and he wants our simple prayers. And then I had a bit of an aha moment. God wants our friendship, right? He wants to go to lunch with us. And through times of simple and frequent interaction with God, God rubs off on us. We will not be the same after we've really spent time with God. This clicked in such a profound way for me because I'm a bit chameleon-like in the ways that I interact with people. One of my best friends, his name is Johnny, and he's just a very crazy person. He's just kind of outspoken and just loud and in your face. And um, when we go and hang out with their family, my wife is already smiling because she knows this happens. We drive away, and we'll, we'll, be hanging, we'll be talking, and she'll say, why are you talking like Johnny? You would never say that. You would never say that like that, or you'd never say that phrase or that that sentence that way, and I'll say, I don't know, I've been hanging out with Johnny for four days, and I, I just, I don't know, I can't help it. And, and so that really kind of really struck me, because that's the way that I am. I don't even realize it, but I take on verbal attributes of people that I'm hanging around. Do you have people in your life that you feel like make you a better or a worse person? I would argue that anyone we spend time with changes us at least a little bit. So spending time with God allows him to transform our hearts because you can't spend time with God and not be changed. He rubs off on you just the same way that other people rub off on you. So this is like the second big thing that I just really pulled away from this that I feel like I learned is that through these times of simple interaction with God, he transforms our hearts. It's transformational. We don't become humble in and of our own might as much as we may try. A lot of us have drived to be this or be that, but we'll never become people God knows we can without continual encounters with him. God exalts us. He lifts us up when we continually have lunch with him. There's no way we are left unchanged when we spend time with God. And in time, he takes 
the prayers that we start with. The examples I've already given about, oh, help me not to yell at my kids, or please save me from the wrath of my wife. Um, Those kinds of things. That was supposed to be funny, sorry. I'll work on that for next time. Um, He takes those those simple, self-centered prayers, and and eventually he takes any, any, through the times of simple interaction with him, he changes your heart to where now you are a more compassionate, more loving, more Christ-like person because he's rubbed off on you. This was a big sigh of relief for me because, like I said, I often try to be like the Pharisee. I try to do the right thing and try to, you know, muscle through a, um, a season of life or a task that needs to be have, that needs to be done. And I try to do things out of my own gusto. I've often felt like my prayers are selfish, but now I'm, I, I understand that those selfish prayers are just part of the process of becoming a more Jesus-like person. I bring those to him. I have those times of simple interaction with him, and he, he changes my heart, not me changing my heart. When I was in college... My mom told me a story about when she was in college and she was taking something like 20 or 22 credit hours in a nursing program and working and just really stressed out. She began to have panic attacks um, and back then medication wasn't handed out as freely as it is now. Uh, Maybe freely is not the right, right word, but anyway, she didn't think to go to the doctor. She went to the pastor of her church and said, this is my situation, I'm really stressed out. It's hard to function. What should I do? And, and he said, you should read three psalms a day and really read them, really meditate on them and pray over them. And I don't know how she took that advice, but when she first told me that, I thought, well, he has to say that. I mean, he's a pastor. He has to say that. He can't say go to the doctor. But she started to do this. And throughout the days and the weeks and the months that passed, it really, really helped. It really helped to where she graduated from school and has, helped, has been a nurse now since before I was born um, and raised all of us kids, and it really, really helped. And since then, Mom has had a vibrant relationship with God. Two and a half years ago, my dad passed away. And we were talking about this story And my mom said to me, I don't read my Bible every day and pray every day because I feel like I'm supposed to or because I think it makes me a good person. I do it because it's survival for me. I think mom has known life apart from God, and it's just hard. We weren't meant to be that way. We were meant to rely on and have relationship with God. In the beginning of our prayer life, we are the center of our prayers. We pray about us. But in God's time, your heart transforms. A revolution takes place, and it's slow and probably not even uh, perceived by you, but inevitably, God will change you. In closing, I want to reiterate The tax collector, simple, honest plea to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. 
The tax collector's prayer is simple, but it is through this simple prayer that the tax collector is transformed. Transformation occurs by spending time with Jesus, simple and honest time. As I alluded to earlier, my prayer life has taken a step forward since I've started to understand that this, these selfish prayers that I pray, or these simple prayers that don't look like the prayers, some of the prayers in the Bible that are very eloquent and um, big words, and I'm a math teacher, I'm not good at words, and so, um, again, that was supposed to be funny. Um, man, I'm struggling. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. <laughs> But through these times of simple prayer, these short snippets of simple prayer at a red light or in between classes at school or when I'm walking down the hallway because Charlotte, my two-year-old, is in her room and it's nine o'clock at night and she's screaming and she's supposed to be in bed an hour and a half ago. And I just pray, God, God, help me here. Those times are what he wants. He wants us to interact with him often. And I can feel my heart opening up and being closed off to now opening up to having a deeper relationship with God than I had before. Prayer is not for the eloquent and the educated, but just as a child can't create a bad picture, I can't offer a bad prayer and you can't offer a bad prayer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the fact that even though you are huge and all-knowing and the creator of all things, and that we don't deserve your love, that your love is accessible to us, that all we have to do is open the door and, and have lunch and spend time with you. I thank you that we don't have to feel like it is us that has to change us. That we can understand that you are the one that changes us and that all we have to do is come to and be with you. Thank you for your love and thank you for your son for sending him to die for us. In Jesus' name, amen.